that's been the custom. Um, I've tried to gather up prayers by scientists, for scientists, from scientists. Um, and the, today's prayer comes from a Professor Thomas Leach who passed away uh, this year. He was a theoretical physicist, and this is a prayer that he wrote. So as usual, I will lead us with the white portion, and you will repeat the blue portion. Who saw it in all its beauty and complexity and called it good. And who took on flesh and blood to overcome decay and death. Give to your people an image of that same insight into the love of your world. That those who are called to be scientists might be enabled to understand and to turn aside the agents of diseases that maim and destroy. For the good of all your people, and in the name of your incarnate Son, Jesus, Messiah. Amen. 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 Um, thank you all for uh, being here and for um, the, the class, the, the semester so far. It's been an, an incredible experience for me um, to be a part of this and to hear um, all of your questions and thoughts and um, to try to do a little bit of justice to um, this vast uh, topic that's bigger than us all. Um, so I think it's, um, it's great to begin with um, prayers um, to put us kind of in the right perspective. Um, so this week has been um, an incredible uh, roller coaster of excitement in a lot of different ways. Recently, we've been seeing all kinds of, of new developments, new possibilities kind of on the verge of, of kind of burgeoning into reality. And, um, and so a lot of this is still just up in the air, a lot of questions, but the world is getting weirder and weirder all the time in some sense. So on Tuesday, um, uh, a team of scientists uploaded a set of papers to the um, archive preprint server. And these uh, papers, here's the technical version with uh, I think six um, different authors. Here's the uh, second version they uploaded. They said uh, the title, The First Room Temperature Ambient Pressure Superconductor. Or as the Science News uh, picked it up uh, a few days later, scientists claim they found the Holy Grail. <laughs> so this is one of the most exciting uh, potential developments, if it's true, one of the most exciting developments in our lifetimes, probably. And so um, to think about that a little bit, um, well, I'll just kind of uh, put the, <laughs> the cherry on the top of it. Here's how the scientists end their paper. We believe that our new development will be a brand new historical event that opens a new era for humankind. So they believe, everybody believes, if this is real, this is profound. Does everybody understand what superconductors are? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
on it. Um, yeah, so, okay, so we've actually known about superconductors for a little over a century. And we're all familiar with the idea that electricity can flow through wire, through materials like metals and copper wire and so forth. We use it to, uh, you know, like arrange our buildings, our world, you know, uh, power lines run all over, um, wires run in our devices. We feel like it's commonplace to be able to transport electricity from one place to another. But as we do so, every time we move electricity, it's meeting resistance. And as it meets resistance, it loses power. Right? And so this has significant um, uh, costs over the long term. And it has significant um, costs in terms of what can actually happen. Because in, in essence, we're limited by how far and how long and how frequently we can transmit energy. So there are a class of devices that were discovered in uh, 1911 that um, actually the resistance in them goes to absolute zero. You can transmit energy through them, transmit electricity through them with no losses whatsoever. And that means you can transmit um, an infinite number of times. And that means that things become possible in the physical world that weren't possible before, weren't possible otherwise. Um, and so one of the developments, one of the properties of, um, of superconductors is something called the Meissner effect. Um, and this is um, the fact that normal materials um, will either pass through a magnetic field or have their own magnetic field that kind of responds to it. Superconductors expel magnetic fields. Okay. And this leads to really interesting dynamics. So, for example, um, you can see little demonstrations like this. I believe they're pouring liquid nitrogen on here. And I feel like there should be some 2001 Space Odyssey music. There, <laughs> there you go, levitation. And um, a kind of stable levitation that is theoretically impossible with regular magnetism. Um, so this is, uh, yes, this is one of the ways that these, um, these magnetic fields can be used in superconducting. Um, other thing, uh, another thing that kind of comes out of that is called flux pinning. And so you can see people use um, these superconductors uh, in relation to magnets and use them as not just to um, hover, not just to repel, but actually to be pinned in a particular location within a magnetic field, either to rise above it floating or hanging below it, or to have some other kind of relationship to it. These properties allow superconductors to um, not only do incredible things with electricity, but actually manipulate electric, uh, electromagnetic fields in a way that is difficult or impossible otherwise. And so we have seen some um, big kind of use cases for, for this stuff come out. So one of them might be this, right? So an MRI machine um, can use this kind of um, capacity to control electric fields uh, or sorry, magnetic fields in a way that allows for um, for this kind of deep uh, uh, imaging to happen, right? Um, we've also seen uh, that in uh, recent years, we've found some new uh, uses for for this technology, for this ability to um, 
to control uh, magnetic fields and so forth. And one of the big ones is quantum computers. Um, and so the quantum computers uh, have to be held uh, because of the, the way that they are, they work, they have to be held in this state of like, in, incredibly kind of fragile suspension, so to speak. This incredibly precise state. And that requires an immense amount of power. And along with that power, it requires an immense amount of refrigeration. And um, so typically you will see like these kinds of, um, of operations surrounding this stuff. We've also seen the development of uh, fusion. So there's been recent advances in fusion technology um, where we're getting closer and closer all the time to being able to create fusion power that is um, cost effective. So right now we can form fusion, like we can do, we can create our own suns here on the surface of the earth. Um, but the power to, that is required to control those, to hold those together, is so immense that the amount of energy we get out of it is less than the amount of energy we put into it. And we're right on the verge of being able to flip that equation. When we flip that equation, then all of a sudden we essentially have limitless free energy because we can turn matter into energy in a similar way that the sun does. Um, and so a lot of the kind of needs and, and so forth that we have um, in uh, regular power generation might go away. But this is an int intense thing. And so it requires these massive kind of constructions um, like uh, we're seeing here, right? So these, these kind of huge room level, building level type of projects to control these kind of things. And so that's where superconductors have been um, for a while now. And the reason why they are, take so much uh, infrastructure to work uh, it, at this scale is because they require incredibly low temperatures. So in 1911, when they first discovered superconducting, they discovered that you could get this kind of effect if you got to um, just a few degrees above absolute zero. So the, the, temp, uh, the temperature of liquid helium, which is something like 4 Kelvin, I think like, 200 and negative 270 degrees Celsius, something like that. Um, and so that, that's where that requires a lot of energy and power to hold the things at that temperature, right? Which is what we're seeing in a lot of these uh, pictures. Um, as, we, as time went on, um, people discovered that you could actually get what they call high temperature superconductors, which are superconductors that work at the temperature of liquid nitrogen, which is something like um, negative 200 degrees uh, Celsius. Um, I think, if I'm doing my math right, 70 degrees uh, above absolute zero, somewhere around there. Um, and um, so that's high temperature, right? Obviously to us, that's incredibly low temperature, but it's a temperature that we can work with in a different way. Still, in order to do something practical, realistic, um, tangible with it, it requires an immense infrastructure. So what would happen if we actually had the capacity to create room temperature superconductors and key point ambient pressure, right? Yeah. 
Like not, like we don't have to have this under intense uh, pressurization. This can exist in the room that we exist in um, and exist in essentially the same temperatures that our laptops work in or that the wires that we string across the, the town and across our buildings and in our devices work in, right? This um, would open up incredible new possibilities, new technologies. Um, some of you have been like kind of jumping at this. Any, any ideas or theories about what that might um, uh, actually open up? Exactly. That's, <laughs> you're thinking right along. <laughs> um, yeah, so. He said the Mr. Fusion from Back to the Future, too. So, uh, in, I believe he puts a banana pills in the, yeah, in the thing and uh, gets out fusion energy. So, yeah, I'll get to that in a minute. Um, so, one of the things that we could get um, would be, uh, first of all, just incredibly um, small, efficient batteries. So right now, batteries cost about 25% of the energy that you put into them, you lose, right? And this is a problem with electric cars. If we want to have electric airplanes, this is a problem. Well, superconductors make a, a really ideal battery because you just put electricity into them and leave it spinning forever until you need it, right? There's nothing else to it. You just leave the energy where you, where you, um, where you want it and pull it out when you need it. So this is um, potentially incredible for um, all kinds of consumer electronics, electronic vehicles, all that kind of stuff. You all, what's that? Other plus to a battery like that is that it charges instantly. Yeah, there you go. If you've got a big enough pipe to put in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It charges right now. Yeah. The key, the, the key to things in the future, though, will be the, uh, uh, the fusion. Yeah. Um, that, that powers everything. Yeah, it does. Uh, but the one of the big problems we have, of course, with, with um, uh, our power um, grid and our power systems right now is how do you store energy once you've collected it, right? This is a problem with solar energy. It's, a, it's why uh, fossil fuels are really um, easy and, and make a lot of sense because they're easy to transport stored power, right? If we develop another technology that we can just uh, put the energy in there, take it out when we need, this becomes a very different conversation very quickly. So that's one of the things. The other thing is uh, the exciting stuff like levitation, right? We've seen like maglev trains. People are already working on like superconducting um, uh, magnetic trains, but this would uh, dramatically drop the costs and maintenance of, of something like that, make it much more practical. Scott, Scotty really can beam you up? Yeah, maybe. We'll get there. <laughs> um, so the, the other thing is that actually um, there will be like a lot of applications of this um, in the healthcare world. So um, talking about superconductors for MRIs, there's a limit on, on the uh, resolution and the, um, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, anyway, the precision of what we're able to get because of the limitations on the magnetic fields. So if we develop a, a, a capacity to control these magnetic fields, much larger, much cheaper, much uh, less infrastructure, we can get high-level uh, MRIs that um, will, uh, I think someone has estimated like 12 times the precision, uh, maybe more. 
So this kind of thing is um, opens up all kinds of doors. Another one is that we could get um, room level or uh, room temperature quantum computers like we've been discussing. We could have quantum computers in our uh, laptops. That opens up a whole other era of computation. And, um, and finally, yeah, that's right. We can watch them much faster. We can watch all of the internet um, very quickly. And, um, and of course, if we do get uh, the ability to run fusion in you know, our backyard or something like this, right, this um, changes all kinds of stuff. You had a comment? So, yeah. what impact would this have on the use of fossil fuels? Well, everything's going to take a, a while to to be used, to be deployed, all this kind of stuff, right? So uh, just like any kind of technology, we're going to see um, uh, era of overlapping types of technology. Um, but ultimately, this, like, superconductors create the possibilities for much more power, much more accessibly, much more cheaply, um, much more portably, and much more cleanly, right? So this is kind of an ideal um, power generation and storage mechanism um, in pretty much every dimension that we can talk about. So it's the idea that I'm driving in my VW Bug with a fusion reactor in the back. That's of the right. There. The that. <laughs> there you go. There's your Mr. Fusion. And so yeah. what happens yeah. if I get rear end by? A that's right. Then you get a, a nuclear explosion. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, we. You know, obviously, like I said, it's it's a uh, there's a transition period, and one of the things that we're going to see. Um, if this kind of thing rolls out, would be um, we develop different kinds of power plants than we've had before, right? And so we'll use some of the same transmission methods, and we'll have these new sources of, of energy. Um, and then we could see, like, m many more power plants distributed um, more locally and cleanly and so forth. Um, well, there you go. And with your, uh, with your superconductor's batteries, you'll be storing enough energy that you can power a flying car, and then there you go. Yeah. So this is a very exciting... Uh, yeah, that's right. This is, so this is the thing. So this is... The, the, the thing is, like, so this opens a new era of human history if it is true, right? If this is real. And that's a big question. So yeah, we're, so we're talking like this is, you know, all these things that we can hope to get out of it, hope to get those uh, pods from the um, sci-fi series where they put you in there and the AI scans you and fixes everything instantly. Um, the, this kind of technology is how you get this kind of future or this kind of future or even this kind of future. <laughs> but are we there yet, right? Like are we, uh, do we have it? So. Here's the thing. Um, I'm pretty confident that we are going to have it, and going to have it fairly soon. So this is the history of superconducting right here from early 1900s till uh, today. And what it basically charts is the temperature that we've been able to um, run superconducting technologies at. Right? And so as you can see in this chart, over time, we found more and more higher and higher temperatures that we can perform um, superconducting tasks. And we're getting up there and going from this liquid helium near absolute zero up to liquid nitrogen 
uh, up to some of these other technologies, and we're just tiptoeing into this room temperature area, right? Yeah. Okay, here, here's the big question. As we get into more and more of these advanced things that we're doing, yeah. how do we counter the effect that says, wow, look at what we're doing. We don't need God. Good question. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Um, so the, the thing about this, we are, we are getting really close to that room temperature thing. And so maybe we um, will find that uh, sometime in the next several decades. Or maybe we found it last Tuesday. Right? Either way, we're ultimately going to open up a new era in the history of humankind. Um, but um, a lot rides on whether the thing that we've got is, uh, is the right thing or not. So what do we do about this? So one of the things we know is that the scientists who put this out, they really believe that this is the real thing, right? They not only put their names on this paper, they uh, said these grandiose things in the paper, but they released two versions of the paper, one with six authors and one with three, and the, um, the theory is that uh, the one with three is designed to um, get a Nobel Prize because a Nobel Prize can only be shared among three people, right? So these people think this is the real deal, right? They are incredibly confident about this, and, um, and, and so they've put this out and shared this in the, with the world. So here's the thing about um, science. As Richard Feynman, um, a famous physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project, puts it, first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you are the easiest person to fool. <laughs> right? So this is the uh, condition of scientific work. These people have done experiments. They put out videos showing apparently superconducting effects. They've put out all this data and so forth. But have they fooled themselves? It's quite possible. It's happened many, many, many times before. There are all kinds of ways that they could have fooled themselves about what they've generated in this paper. So how do we deal with that? Well, this is um, what science does. They gave us their data. They gave us the instructions on how to replicate what they did. And now, over the last several days, hundreds and thousands of people have begun working through this information they've put. Um, teams have been flying to different places. Uh, people have been spinning things up, um, looking, analyzing the data, attempting to replicate in their own labs. Right? And the great thing about what um, was announced on Tuesday was um, that if their thing is real, it's incredibly easy to actually replicate in a, uh, an average lab. So this is very easy for people to test out. And so this is what we've seen over the last several days. And I've uh, enjoyed following some of these folks as they kind of do their own thing. These are a couple of uh, rocket engineers who decided to take off and uh, spend some time trying to spin this up. And so they've documented and live streamed their efforts, right? All the, the big, bigger labs who are working on this are maybe keeping quieter about it, but, um, but these guys are showing step-by-step uh, step how they're going through the process and what it takes, right? And um, they're trying to replicate this effect. And this is, uh, you know, this has been uh, an exciting thing 
uh, for you know Twitch streaming, uh, normally reserved for video games and so forth. People uh, streaming their efforts at uh, replicating these things. That's been. Those of you that don't know, Twitch is a, uh, a platform for streaming content. Usually, it's for video games. So mm -hmm. It's not exactly a Facebook kind of thing, but it's kind of sort of. So this is like this is a wholesome like this feels incredibly wholesome to me like to see um, um, not only like uh, an entire scientific community kind of work to work on this stuff but also kind of like the um, the uh, lay scientists and the citizen scientists kind of come in and and do all this stuff and we've actually seen um, in previous years um, some of these efforts lead to real realizations about uh, about some of the stuff because the the data is put out there anyone can read through it anyone can analyze it anyone can look for holes or glitches or misinterpretations right even if you don't have a lab that can replicate this you can look at the data and see does it actually support the thing that they're saying it does you can analyze this and um, a, a couple of years ago where a similar thing was uh, thought to be discovered one of the uh, people looking through um, the data uh, noticed um, that, again, this is a few years ago, noticed that the static, the, the noise in the graph on, on one of the charts appeared to kind of be doubled. And that led to realization that um, someone had tampered with the data, right? So this is... Um, uh, this is out there, this is uh, data that people can inspect, anyone can look at it, and someone had actually been able to see, oh, the, the noise, the static, has just been copied and pasted at certain places. This was a previous paper again, and what they discovered in that was that uh, of the nine or so authors on the paper, um, probably one of them was tampering with the data. So the whole team understood what they were doing and believed what they were doing was was producing the results and so forth and one person was tweaking it so this is another aspect of like the how you fool yourself or how teams fool each other and so forth and this is why this kind of data is put out here so that people can interrogate it and try to see where the things are there might be errors or mistakes or something like that um, and so that's the this is science working as it's supposed to right this is a group of people coming up with an exciting uh, discovery potentially recognizing that they um, have the capacity to be wrong about it at all kinds of levels individually as a team as a even a, um, a field misunderstanding certain things putting out their data, putting out their, their instructions to replicate, and having hundreds, thousands, and eventually maybe hundreds of thousands people of people like work on and test and see if this actually holds up, right? So this has been an exciting week in science because of this, right? Because the announcement's exciting, but also to see science actually play out as it's intended to do. Um, and so a couple of, uh, so as, as it stands, um, we are still in the question um, uh, section with regards to this technology, right? It, it was announced on Tuesday, 
we're still uncertain about it today, right? That's actually incredible in historical terms, right? Um, because it's likely that um, if it replicates, we'll be able to see that in the next several days or weeks. Um, and if it's not going to replicate, we'll probably be able to see that as well. Um, so a couple of points about this, just uh, the theology that I kind of want to point out with it. Um, if this power works, and whenever the similar power does work, this is a power that does not take from someone else, right? Uh, worldly power, the power that humans have thought about for most of human history is a, a situation of you go, you find somebody with something, you hit them on the head, and you take what's theirs. And now you've got it, right? That's how power has been conceived for most of human history. And that's, um, you can call that zero-sum power. For, it's for one person to have something, they have to take it from someone else. Um, scripture is constantly kind of uh, pushing back on that idea of power. Like, that is not the kind of power that God is interested in or is pointing his people to. This kind of power um, is a power that, that can bless everyone. If this power works, it's good for the scientist who found it, but it's good for everybody else. Like Everyone else in the world will ultimately end up benefiting from it. And that's part of why you get all these teams of people working on this to try to replicate it, to try to understand it, because this is an exciting thing for everyone. It's, uh, it's not zero-sum. It's not something you have to take from someone else. It actually generates something, a kind of blessing that did not exist before. I think that's part of what's special about science. The other thing is it only comes through humility. It takes the humility of recognizing you could be wrong, you could have fooled yourself, um, you could be fooling others in all kinds of ways. And so the only way to resolve that is then to kind of submit your uh, results, submit your ideas um, to others in a way where they can actually uh, question them. And so that's where uh, this really only works in community. And talking to Daniel about this uh, this week, he was pointing out how similar this is to um, the life of faith, right? You really only get to do it well when you do it in community for precisely the same reason. We make mistakes. We are, uh, are flawed. We are fallible. We are limited. We need other people to help correct the mistakes that we make. Um, and so uh, uh, we'll do uh, our scripture reading <laughs> now. Um, any any thoughts on that before we um, before we jump ahead? Yeah, I had a thought, and that is, what happens after this? Because you know, in, in any great innovation, yeah, people rush in with profit motive, sure, and patents, and yeah. how can I exclude and get rich and blah 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, it's great, holy, and godly right up to there, yeah, in community, and then you got some miscreants who go, mm -hmm. I can. So, yeah, and investment flows in, and the investment is necessary to move it into practicality. But mm -hmm. you know, here we are again, capitalists. So, I don't know. yeah. Um, so part of uh, there's definitely um, the negatives uh, that humans uh, that come out of any human use of power. Right. Anytime we have power, we are prone to uh, abuse it in various ways. That's a situation of what it is to be human and to live in the world and so forth. 
so again, it comes back to like, how do we wield power? I think the scriptural idea is not that we don't have power. It's that we use it in humility, um, for love, in community, so people can help us to shape those things for good, right? That's, that's the, um, the, the way forward. And that's, I think, the way forward for humanity. And the, the value, the merit that science has in pursuing these things doesn't come because um, all those uh, scientists are such beautiful, wonderful people better than the rest of us. It's because they, they understand their role in, in this thing right here, right? And that's really what uh, I think Christianity is about. It's not uh, that we are better than the people outside of the church or whatever. It's that we come into the church in order to participate in this process of humility and community to shape ourselves towards the purposes of love. Yeah. I read this. I'm highly, highly skeptical of it, but at the same time, they, in their paper, listed the exact chemicals. Yeah. They listed the exact process they went through to mold those chemicals into what they, yeah, how they created superbugs. Yeah. And so it's high, it's duplicable. It's yeah. before the whole world at this point in time. Yeah. So I don't think profit. But the applications generate profit. That's true. So when Mike and I began planning the course out, the class out course, and set up a, an outline of things we wanted, we had a goal, and we have a goal. And the end goal is, if you were in that first category of people where, um, what was it? It was hostile. Um, yeah, conflict. Yeah. Hostile to one another there, in conflict with one another. If you were in that category, which I think most people in this room are not, and most people who have attended are not and have not been, but we started from there, okay? We wanted to move them from that position to uh, a position of seeing that they're not in conflict. And then the middle position was, well, the relationship, if there is one between science and religion, is uh, irrelevant. And our goal was to actually say, actually, it is quite relevant. And move people from that position to the final position, which is, how, would, how did we say it? Relationship. They are in relationship. Yeah. And this is where it's really important <coughs> that Christians, this is the thing that we're hoping to communicate and actually inspire you at some level in some way in your network to communicate, particularly to younger people who are you know, finding their way in the world, that it's now in this moment that you brought up that the benevolent, wise leader, not leadership, but exercise of God-given dominion in the world is crucial. If Christian voices are not talking in the science community wisely and benevolently, then all the other voices are going to be heard. All the other decisions will be made. Profit motive before all. Nations before all our people before their people, this tribe before that tribe. And so this is our end game as far as what we set out to do in, in this class. And that is realize that when these things come along, and you raise the question, you know, well, what about the evil capitalists, things like that? You know? This is why we need Christian voices. This is why we need Christian scientists. This is why we need people who are inspired by scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit influenced by God, ruling wisely, exercising the dominion of Genesis 1 and 2. You have dominion over the earth. Science is a means of that. 
and now you need to be speaking into these moments. And so that's what we are aiming for. Yeah. There's going to be an internal struggle also because don't we try to get everything we can get legally, absorb as much as we can, amass as much as we can. Still about the do we have, do we have ourselves above everybody else and we give all we can get rather than benefiting as many people as we can? That, that's an attitude that has to be constantly, I think, fought among myself and I, I'm sure a lot of other people who say that they are Christian. Hmm. One of the things I, I was thinking about in, um, in, in how people think about the scientific community and, and scientific world, right, is like um, I think someone asked a question weeks ago about the the, the amount of scientists who are people of faith versus versus not right, and uh, my understanding is, you know, it's it's not that far different from just the general population, but it does skew a little more secular, and um, and so you know a lot of times, um, you know, the people who might be coming up with some of these profound discoveries are not people of faith, and I think some people of faith will look at that and say, well, why should I be celebrating? this thing, right, if it's not coming from, from one of us. Now, there's a couple of things we might say about that. This is a human being made in the image of God. They're doing something that is part of the capacity of being made in the image of God. That's something we celebrate, regardless of, of how it comes. But also, there's a, a prag pragmatic thing, which goes to what Daniel was saying. In the early days of the scientific revolution, it was all people of faith, because they believed this kind of stuff about the nature of science in, in relation to um, the Christian calling. They believed they were supposed to be in the center of it. And so if we've um, sort of lost ground in that, um, maybe that's on us for not showing up, right? for not taking that calling seriously, that we should be out there trying to advance those purposes. Yeah? I was just going to say, part of it, as someone who has a son who's bent towards science and sees that as his calling and what he wants to do in life. Um, he's been told that it might not be wise because of his faith. Right. And has been discouraged from it. Yeah. And I think that has hurt us as Christians from preventing people who are strong in their faith from going into that field. Yeah. And um, it's something we've been yeah. telling him he can do both and yeah. be strong in both. Um, but I think that has hurt us in the field of science from having strong Christian leaders in yeah. that field. Yeah, I think Ironically, so. some people say the same thing about seminary. Yeah. <laughs> Don't go there, you'll lose your faith. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, anytime we, any, anytime we <clears throat> allow ourselves to be challenged, right? Anytime we, we study something that we're not familiar with and we challenge ourselves, it, it has the capacity to kind of shake us, right? It has the capacity to kind of disturb our understanding of the world. And so the position of faith is not, let's never shake ourselves, let's never challenge ourselves. It's, it's no, I, you know, there is a, a way to reconstitute it on the other side of that because we're after what's true and beautiful and good and not just kind of a false sense of security, right? It's, and, and that's not a position of faith, and it's often, unfortunately, where 
people of faith have, have found themselves trying to kind of hold into that. I love how Paul deals with that when he says, what can be known about God is visible in creation. Yeah. And he's not just saying the stars, he's saying atomics, you know, right. everything else. And so people of science can go, I am seeing what God has put into this. Right. You can dismiss it as just happening randomly. Right. I don't. Right. And it's much more fulfilling for me. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I, I go back to last week when you talked about why does science work. We yeah. discussed why it did. But I get to thinking about why does science work. And I go to that first and it says power, but whether it's medicine, whether it's yeah. whatever, it works so that people can flourish. Yeah. And God wants his people to flourish. Yeah. So science can work so it can do that. So, yes, we, it's it's easy for us to point our finger at somebody and say, well, you're bad because you're doing it for profit. Okay. Well, some will, right? Yeah. And in the end, God will judge and do what he wants to with that. But right. we also have people who have a benevolent heart, so if we can do fusion that's re repeatable, this superconductor that's repeatable right. and becomes efficient, then you can set it up in places around the world, people that can do that, yeah. and bless people, and that's what God does that. So just because some people may do something bad doesn't mean, well, well we shouldn't do it at all. Right. We live in a world in which we're all doing something bad almost all the time, yeah, right? Like, exactly right. so we we can't we can't um, just like vac you know put ourselves in a vacuum tube where where nothing bad ever happens. We are in the world working hopefully for good within a context where at every level there are just a mixture of different things happening, right? And so that's part of why um, we do this kind of stuff, right? Like this is part of why we. We structure uh, our lives this way is because we it's not something like we can't be perfect on our own we're not like the uh, the perfect moral specimen coming to the the table to do scientific inquiry we're gonna find it all out by ourselves and and so forth we're actually going to have to enter into a process of submitting to others and and learning from others allowing ourselves to be challenged and um, and I think that's a that's a holy process right um, being an educator um, as a career and at heart, um, I think about, and this is really separate from what's been going on here, the way we teach our young children in the church, is that part of the problem, that they're learning a lot of magical type stories, they're learning about you know, Adam and Eve and all the days it took to create, and you're teaching them you're teaching them these, and, and I'm not saying no one can believe that literally, but I think as long as we take that kind of thing so literally, kids are gonna grow up being separated from science because, you know, you're taking these, you know, the Noah and the, the two and of each animal and, and all that, and it, they're great stories, but are we teaching them as facts and is that hurting? <coughs> as kids grow up in the church, are they learning separate those two things. I, um, I just, I don't know. Yeah, I'm reminded of my uh, my niece. She, when she was little, she sketched out a, I think it was a timeline of the universe, and there's a, a Big Bang and Adam and Eve, and like, she had worked it all out uh, in, her, in her own head, how all these things uh, fit together. I think, um, uh, you know, th this difficulty of like how we read and how we teach people to read is a, is a big question that has a lot of different aspects to it. For me, I think the oldest way that we have to read scripture is we, we read it um, 
as imparting morals, right? Like we read it as kind of um, shaping us and shaping our lives and shaping, um, uh, you know, our, our behaviors. We talked about liturgy uh, and how we might read scripture as liturgy. I think sometimes when we've we've gotten caught up in this question of like literal versus figurative and so forth, we missed what scripture is actually there to do, which is to shape us towards certain ends and certain, and certain um, characteristics and so forth. And I think that's the, the real tragedy to me of, of some of how we've been led to think about Genesis. We've missed what it's telling us to do um, because we think we've got an idea of what it, what it meant back then or, or something like that that becomes really important. And we miss that actually instructive element. Like, here's what you're supposed to do in the world Here's what it means to be human for you and living in the world. So there's a lot there. I know we're out of time. Um, I think maybe, uh, can we end on our scripture? Uh, no, he's, he's saying no. <laughs> there's some difficult words in that. <laughs> you saw the names of all the people I'd have to pronounce in front yeah. of you. We <laughs> <laughs> we'll pick it up next week. Yeah, it's gonna, yeah. So, Well, thank you all so much uh, for being here and participating and uh, your questions and comments. It's been great. So,